As we enter the second summer of the pandemic, let's look back to the summer of 1968. Revolution rather than relief was in the air and all over the world. Mexico City, Prague, Paris, Berlin, Calcutta, Saigon, and Detroit. Detroit was an industrial giant and the auto manufacturers were among the largest private employers of black workers. While civil rights activists were fighting racial discrimination all over the US, Detroit had something unique. The revolutionary union movements or RAMs started by black auto workers in 1968. A year later, these movements coalesced into the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. Many of the original league members continue to be politically active and their experiences and insights remain relevant to us today. In this episode, Jerome Scott, a founding member of the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, tells us about its motivations and accomplishments, why it was black workers who began these revolutionary union movements, and how highly they valued political education and analysis. We also touch on the eventual split in the organization in the 70s. Jerome Scott is a member of the League of Revolutionaries for a New America and a founding director of Project South, the Institute for the Elimination of Poverty and Genocide. He is a founding member of the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. Well, first of all, let me um, clear up the history. 1968, um, drum started. The Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement was started in May of 1968. And that was the Dodge main plant in Hamtramck, Michigan. Okay. You know, uh, Detroit. Hamtramck is internal to Detroit. It's surrounded by Detroit. Uh, And the League of Revolutionary Black Workers then started in 69. So in 68, I mean, as you have indicated, 68, the world was on fire. You know, I mean, there have been books written about all the things that happened in 1968, and I, and, and, and I think for the same reason um, things happened here, they were happening all over the world, and that is that there was a sense of uh, revolution in the air. You know, people, people, I know for us in Detroit, we believed that if we did this thing right, we could possibly win, hmm. you know, and so, and I think that was the sense of a lot of people throughout the world, and that's why 68 was such a huge year. I think the reason that Dodge, Maine became a center of the struggle in the U.S. and in Detroit is because um, you had a situation where Black workers were taking the lead. You know, we're in the middle of, of what was called the Civil Rights Movement, liberation, Black liberation movement, the whole process. Yeah. Most of that was going on in the streets. What we had here was a, 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 a black workers taking that struggle into the factory hmm. at the point of production. And I think the reason that it became the center is because workers being organized back then at the point of production 
meant that it could actually uh, prevent whatever company that we work for, in this case, Chrysler, from carrying on their productive activity. Hmm. You know, and so it, you know, it, we were in a critical point at a critical moment that could mean the world to the revolutionary process that was going on. And that's why Dodge Maine became the center, hmm. you know, and this whole question of the role of black workers became the a salient question throughout the struggle, you know, and then this whole question, I mean, this whole question of being at the point of production became um, the most important point in the struggle of workers hmm. in this country, that if you were at the point of production, that meant that you had the possibility of being effective with your struggle. And, and I think those are the reasons that um, it became the center of the struggle in the United States at that moment. Hmm. You know, so what, what that makes me wonder is why, why were you, or why did you constitute as the League of Revolutionary Black Workers? So why mm-hmm. wasn't the Rev- League of Revolutionary Workers, who you know happened to be black, perhaps? But yeah, mm-hmm. so tell us about that. Right. Well, here again, uh, we have to begin with the environment. You know, and the environment that we were working in and struggling in was this environment of the struggle of black liberation the struggle for equality of black folks throughout this country. And so, and, and in our workplace, you know, we were all members of the UAW, Mm. paying dues to the UAW, our union. But the UAW was not representing black workers the way that they represented white workers. So Mm. the discrimination, um, was part of the struggle in the plant. It was a big part of the struggle in the plant. You know, white supremacy expressed itself throughout our work in the plants in Detroit at that time. And so it was, if you think about it in that context, in that environment, it was the thing that we should have done. And that was to organize as black workers seeking to extend the liberation movement into the workplace, hmm. you know, and and so that's why that's why we came out as black workers because that's that's the element of the working class that needed to be organized at that moment. Hmm. Hmm. So, I mean that that's so interesting. Like so so when you say the UAW wasn't helping, so did that mean that you know, uh, as a black worker on the on the floor? Uh, you know, uh, th- there's a racist incident, or or uh, and you you go to your union rep, and they don't take it seriously, or they don't address it, or are they maybe responsible for it themselves? I mean, what what kinds of things were going on, uh, you right. know, with the UAW? Yeah. Well, first of all, the most important thing was that we had no no black representation in the leadership of the union, both nationally and locally. Hmm. You know, so at our plant, you know, we, we, the stewards, the people that represented us in the union, the stewards, the, the, and, and all that, the committee men, all that were all white, hmm. you know, and the elections up to that point 
have been a joke because, you know, it was so difficult to to actually run and get elected to any position if you were a black worker because we were not organized. And and so, uh, yes, the expressions of blacks of white supremacy and discrimination was throughout the plant. Hmm. You know, so the examples were were like, say, say a a white foreman um, cursed you out, called you all kinds of names and told you, if you don't get your black end back to work, I'm going to fire you. Hmm. I took that. I take that to my representative at the union. And what the representative says to me is, hey, that happens every day. Don't worry about it. Hmm. Just go back to work. You know, there's no grievance there. Hmm. Well, you know, and and we had countless workers have the same experience, you know, that their complaints were not followed up on. Their their wanting to to have a grievance written never got done. Or in some cases they would write the grievance and then never process it. Hmm. You know, and tell you well nothing happened. You know, so yes, yes, we were not being represented and we didn't have any representation to carry uh, to management the fact that we were totally dissatisfied and weren't going to take it anymore. <laughs> so that meant we had to organize ourselves if we were going to get heard. Hmm. Wow. So it's almost like, I mean, it, the struggle is almost as much against the UAW as against Chrysler. I mean, in a way. You know, it was a combination. Yes. Um, in the initial days, of course, that meant that they, you know, the UAW put out the word that we were dual unionists. That what we were really trying to do is start another union inside their union. Uh-huh. You know, and, and, you know, which was a taboo in the union world to try to organize another union inside that union. We weren't trying to do that. Our program called for demanding that the UAW do what it's supposed to do. And that is represent all of us. You know, we demanded that they represent black workers the same as they represented white workers. You know, and that if we uh, went to them um, with a grievance, that grievance should be carried out and followed through. You know, but but the UAW, you know, they were they understood that this was a fight against the way that they were organizing and leading the union, not against the union as a concept. Okay. You know, we were staunch unionists. I mean, we know you had to be organized. That's why we had to organize as black workers because the union organization wasn't organ, wasn't representing us. Okay. Okay. Um, And so, so you formed the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement. Right. In 1968. In 1968. Um, and then, so right after that, because what happened in May of 1968 when, when um, DRUM was founded, you know, a couple of months later, there was a wildcat strike that DRUM led at Dodge, Maine, which lasted a couple of days you know, these are, that's one of the lessons we can talk about later. Okay. But, you know, it was a wildcat strike. And that wildcat strike, although it didn't last, but maybe, maybe just one full day before they broke it up, 
that sparked organizing in a lot of other plants around Detroit. And so in 1968, we went from Dodge, Maine, having a revolutionary union movement to about 11 other plants in the city starting uh, revolutionary union movements. And then we started a community organization and a student organization. You know, so by the time 1969 came around, we were um, really, if we had so many different apparatuses doing different things that we had to pull them all together under one umbrella. <clears throat> and that's why we organized the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. I see. So the, the League was uh, sort of a gathering of uh, the Revolutionary Union movements in the other big auto plants, as well as had community wings. So like right. you said, okay. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Um, uh, okay. And, and you know, if, if, if we get into later on, like, I think at some point that became sort of a point of... Uh, uh, sort of contention, right, within the, the sort of the mm -hmm. community versus uh, labor kind of thing. So, you know, if, right. if you're willing to talk about that. But I, but I first wanted to ask you how, so, you know, you farmed drum. Um, wh what was the initial reaction of white workers at the plant to this organization? Like, did, did you try to win over allies or was it just like, hey, we are here and deal with us? Mm -hmm. You know, um, one of the things we have to realize is that the plants were pretty much segregated. Hmm. Most of the white workers were skilled trade workers. Most of the black workers were production and janitorial and foundry workers, you know, and there was a few overlaps, you know, I mean, nothing is totally, but in the main, it was a segregated uh, situation in, in the plants. And so when we organized um, black workers, most white workers uh, didn't pay any attention to it. Mm. You know, it was like, oh, okay, they're doing their thing over there. But and, and what we would say to white workers that did come to us and say, why are you organizing black workers? We would say, because of what I've already said, we have no representation, you know, and and you do. You got representation. We don't. Now, you can support us in our struggle to get the UAW and the corporation to open up for for blacks in higher levels of um, the organization. Or, or not, but we, we want your help. But right now we think that the most important thing is for us to get organized so that we had an organized force to make our demands. Hmm. Hmm. And I mean, at the time there were some white sort of leftist or uh, mm -hmm. sort of groups in, in the plants, right? There were organizers mm -hmm. from, uh, I think there was the Marxist-Leninist um, sort of organizations and so was there any relationship with them or you know um first of all there was not a whole back in in the 60s when when we started there was not 
a whole lot of organizing going on in the mm. press at all. I mean, there, I, the 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 uh, influx of uh, white-led organizations, Marxist organizations, into the plants basically came after us. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, basically came after people began to grasp uh, the essential quality of being at the point of production. Then you ha- we had the situation in Detroit where a lot of the Marxist organizations sent people into the plant in order to start some organizing in the plant. Now, back then, we would say to, to our, our white counterparts who were revolutionaries, yes, you should organize white workers, you know, because they need organizing just like we do, but they don't know it, <laughs> you know, and, and we know it. <laughs> and, and so, but that would be our deal. We had, a, and we had some relationships with other organizations like that. Um, and for the moment, that seemed to be the right thing to do. I mean, we learned later that that was not necessarily the right thing to do, even <laughs> at that moment. But at the moment, that was the conversation that we had with people. You organize white workers, we'll organize black workers, and the revolutionaries out of that organizing will get together. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, so I got the history exactly backwards. You, you guys were yeah. actually the leading edge, and then... Yeah, these folks followed. Um, um, okay, so I can't help taking your your bait there. So, so what? Um, so why why was it not necessarily the right thing to do even at the time? Well, I give you the best example. We had a series of wildcat strikes throughout sixty eight and sixty nine, and. And, and, you know, whereas those, those wildcats, I wonder, yeah, sidebar, I wonder if your audience know what a wildcat strike is. You know, tell us because, I, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just for the edification yes, here. Yes, yes. A wildcat strike is a strike that the workers in the plant organizes themselves without the union authorizing it or recognizes it or anything and without any notification Hmm. to the company that we're going to go on strike. Normally when a strike occurs, the union tells the company we're going to strike in 90 days. So the company goes off and gets ready, you know, it stockpiles stuff and get ready for a strike, you know? And so wildcat strike, they don't have that advantage. You know, they, because we, we, like, we would say we're going on strike tomorrow, and we'd go on strike tomorrow. Hmm. You know, and so, so that's a wildcat strike, a, a strike that's determined by the workers in that shop themselves, and they do it on their own without union backing. Hmm. Okay. So there was a series of wildcat strikes all over the city, mainly ran, you know, by black workers. And mainly black workers were the ones who stopped working, who struck. Some of them lasted for just hours. Some of them lasted for maybe a day. None of them were were real successful in terms of getting, but it brought attention to us. It brought attention to the fact that, that we were organizing and we had the ability to organize enough workers to stop production for a limited amount of time. 
And, you know, and so we thought that was a, that was victory enough, you know, because we were moving the process forward. It wasn't until long afterwards, you know, in the 70s that we began to participate in wildcat strikes that were wildcat strikes of both white and black. Mm. And those strikes, like the plant I worked at, Detroit Forge, the uh, Chrysler Corporation in Detroit, when we had our strike in 1973, which was a strike of both black and white workers, both production and skilled trade mm. workers, mm. we were able to shut the corporation down for a whole week. Chrysler Corporation went to its knees for a week, hmm. you know, and we could never do that with black workers alone. Hmm. So once we got there, we could look back and say, you know, had we been able to do this earlier, we might even be in a better position now I see. than we happen to be now. So effectiveness, you know, it, if you want to be effective, it has to be a class thing, not part of the working class. It has to be a, a unified class thing that will make us the most successful at any given moment. Hmm. That's one of the lessons we learned. Hmm. Hmm. Of course, everyone in the class has to agree that that's... Yeah, right. well, I mean, well, not everyone, but a, a critical mass. Yeah, yeah. Um, you try to get everybody in the class to unite, you, you got a hell of a task. <laughs> <laughs> But a critical mass that we're capable of that. Well, so I guess that does lead us to, you know, I mean, you've seen it all. So, you know, and at least, you know, some some of us or some some people on the left are trying to create that sort of unity now. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, what 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 should we do? do and not do, um, uh, you know, and uh, of course, you know, things have changed a lot. And so, so maybe if you want to reflect on that as well, like what are the big changes, you know, in production, in society generally, you know, race relations, and just based on what you've seen, like what should we avoid and what should we actively pursue? Uh, well, of course, the big, the big picture is that we, we do have to pursue uniting that section of the working class that can be united. To me, that's the critical thing that, that we know hmm. uh, from my experience, you know, that you have to try to unite and struggle to unite that section of the class that can be united. But you also have to do that in a way that you're not only looking at the short-term goals, but the long-term goals as well. So, so you have to have a struggle. You, you know, like right now, this whole question of white supremacy is such a huge uh, question that we're dealing with. And in our organizing today, we have to not only deal with class, but we also have to deal with race. Hmm. And, and we have to resist the notion that one is superior to the other, hmm. you know, cause you know, you get into these battles all the time about, well, you know, if, 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 if you're not dealing with class, then you're not doing shit. 
Or if you're not dealing with race, what's wrong with you? Yeah. And I think in the United States, uh, the United States is a class society. No question about that. But its DNA is white supremacy. Hmm. You know, so you've got to figure out how do you deal with both of those questions in a related way in order to be successful in your long-term organizing. You know, you could probably get, get away with short-term organizing for a little while without dealing with those questions. Hmm. But if you want to have long-term solid unity within that section that can be united, these questions have got to be dealt with. So you got to have a really consistent political education process within the organizing. Hmm. You know, um, people organize all the time. What makes that organizing effective and long-term is, is, is how clear you are on the environment in which you're working in and how you can look at things and, and analyze them to the point where you know where to strike. You know, it was fairly easy w when we first started. We learned immediately that if you are at the point of production and you can strike at the point of production, you can paralyze the corporation and eventually paralyze the economy. Hmm. Well, today, because of robotics and artificial intelligence and all this other stuff, most of these plants can run with little or no people. Yeah. Literally, you know. And 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 so we gotta, you know, you gotta use that same analysis to figure out where's that critical point today. You know, and, and we have to remember what, I mean, and, and you can't lose sight of the fact that there's still 150 million people that work in this country. So concentrating on the working class is still true, you know, and organizing and uniting that section that can be united is still true. What we have to figure out strategically is where do we strike our main blow? Hmm. And I think... What, what's happening today is our main blow has got to be pointed at the state, you know, because it's the state that is utilizing this ideology of white supremacy to divide us. Hmm. You know, it's the state that, that covers for these corporations as these corporations are continuously, um, you know, upping their technology and limiting the amount of work and paying less and less money you know, for your work and so on and so forth. I, I think the main blow has to be pointed at the state at this stage hmm. of the revolutionary process. Hmm. And, and, and can't forget that we have, we have a, a serious weapon, you know, because capitalism in the United States <coughs> is 80% consumer driven. Meaning that no matter how good the production is, no matter how much profit they build up within that production, if they don't sell it, it can't be realized. Yeah. They can't get their money unless they sell those commodities. We can have an effect on what can be sold and what can't be sold. We, you know, so we really have to, we really have to educate ourselves so that we can understand where to strike that main blow and, and what is the force that we need to actually be effective in striking that blow. Hmm. Hmm. So, yes, we have to continuously organize. Yes, we have to concentrate on the working class. 
Yes, we have to have political education throughout the process so that we know where to strike our main blow. Thank you. Yeah, you know, one of the striking things when, uh, you know, I, I looked at the videos that you pointed me uh, to and so many of uh, so many of your fellow, you know, members of the league kind of highlight the, the role that political education uh, played uh, in the mm-hmm. organization and it was continuous like it it wasn't right. like a an afterthought it was really built in um, right. uh, so you know you know sort of uh, going off what you said about the state um, what what is the state right now so when we say you know targeting the state um, it, are there you know, are we talking about a particular administration? Are we talking about agencies, uh, government agencies? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, what, yeah, what are you thinking? Right. Well, when we when we think about the state, we take a real holistic view of what the state is. I mean, the state is the the military. The state is our the, our elected officials and the government and the whole process of legislation. The state is the police forces throughout the country. The state is our education process, our public education hmm. and our higher education process. All that is part of the state apparatus that, you know, basically controls what goes on in this country. Um, When we talk about pointing at the state, I mean, I'm sure that most of your audience will recognize that there's a motion in this country toward fascism, toward, you know, uh, a bureaucratic domination of all aspects. The biggest expression of it right now, if you, you I mean, you could think about January 6th, Mm -hmm. or you could think about the attacks on voting, or you could think about the way the police is murdering people every day, even though there's this big uproar over police murdering, but they keep murdering us anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, if you look at some of the legislation that have been enacted where uh, demonstrations are being outlawed, you know, and that if you are in a demonstration and, and somebody drives through the demonstration and kills somebody, they can't be held responsible for it. We're targeting, all, we're looking at all those things and saying that the state, the overall state apparatus, or even look at education. You know, they're, they're outlawing the teaching of historic racism in this country. They're saying that critical race theory can't be taught. Yeah. That's a state moving toward an autocratic position. Hmm. You know, where it wants to eliminate information, it wants you wants you to believe that science is not important and that the only truth is the truth that they tell you. Hmm. So that's what we're looking at. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking hmm. about the state. And the main motion of that state is towards fascism hmm. in this moment. You know, and so and, and, and the way that's expressing itself real concretely is this anti-democracy motion that's going on. And it's, and it's developing all over the country. So that's what we mean when we, when we say we got to target 
the state. We got to make sure that we do not allow the state to actually complete this process of yeah. moving toward fascism. We got to stop that. And, you know, it's not a party. There are elements of the Republican Party and elements of the Democratic Party that wants to go toward that autocratic situation. Um, but there are also a lot of people in this country that don't. You know, I yeah. mean, saying that we're a class society is important. And knowing that there's struggle within those classes as well. There's a struggle within the ruling class right now over whether or not, or I guess better said, should we go to fascism now or should we do a few other things first? But there's <laughs> an element that sees that fascism is the only answer to saving capitalism from this upsurge of struggle that's happening throughout the world. You know, and so <clears throat> that's the, that's what we're talking about when we talk about the state, okay. targeting the state. It, you know, and, and you anticipated I was going to ask you if you thought there were some uh, basic uh, differences between the two parties, you know, between loosely what's called Trumpism, which, you know, is sort of a uh, problematic mm -hmm. term, but... Uh, or whether one party is more in bed with white supremacy than another, or, you know, what the, as you said, this split within the ruling class, uh, is it is it along these traditional political lines, or, or does it cross them? I think it crossed the political lines. Hmm. I mean, we have to remember, or if we don't know it, we have to, you know, like like we we just heard and celebrated the hundredth anniversary of the Tulsa massacre mm -hmm. in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and that was only one of literally hundreds of massacres of black people and black businesses historically. We have known fascism in this country. I mean, all you got to do is look at what Jim Crow was in the South, hmm. you know, after the, the Civil War. You know, so we have known fascism. And the Democratic Party was the party in control in the South yeah. during those fascist years. The, that ideology has not went away from the Democratic Party. It's there still, you know, and, and you know, so, the, so, so I, don't, I, I don't think it goes along party lines. Hmm. Because the other side of that is, we have, you have to remember that the Democratic Party and the Republican Party both serve the same ruling class. True. It's not like two different ruling classes. It's just one, and they have two parties. You know, and and depending on what the environment is and what the situation is, it's more effective for them to have the Democrats or the Republicans in charge hmm. at any given time. Hmm. So you got both elements in both parties. Hmm. You know, and so, so, and and I don't. I wouldn't say that there's a split in the ruling class yet. I think there's struggle, and that struggle could develop into a split. And I do think, I think it's along the lines of how do we control the the arising resistance to the way capitalism is ruled today. You know, that's what the struggle is about. How do we? How do we control it and how do we say, make sure that it doesn't 
overthrow capitalism. That's what they're struggling about. And some people think that that the situation that we have now, which is which I call ruling class democracy, you know, that's yeah. democracy for the ruling class for sure. They think that that's fine. Other people think that no, we we got to get rid of this ruling class democracy. As and I, oh, I'm, I should I should make clear what I mean too by fascism. Fascism is state rule. Right now, the state rule that we're under is bourgeois democracy, mm. ruling class democracy. Fascism replaces that with a fascist state apparatus, which eliminates the rule of law. That's the point. I mean, they think that eliminating the rule of law is the only way that they can ensure that capitalism can resist the, the upsurges that is happening throughout the world. Yeah. And that's the struggle that's going on throughout the ruling class. And in that struggle, from our point of view, you know, even bourgeois democracy, even though it is ruling class democracy, is preferable to fascism, I think is, is what you're saying. Or... I think it's easier for us to operate. Yeah. On the... But the other side of that is, bourgeois democracy is not good for us in the long term either. You yeah. know, I mean, we're fighting against bourgeois democracy. That's one of the reasons that, that there's a social base developing around fascism. You know, I mean, a lot of times people ask me, what, 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 why, are, why are they doing all this big lie? You know, all these voting things in Arizona and Michigan and here in Georgia. They're using that process to build a social base for fascism. Hmm. How do you get people to, to, to believe that the democratic process is so rigged that they cannot trust it? And therefore, they have to do whatever it takes to be done for them to have a voice. If that means cutting off the voice of uh, people of color and poor people, then that's okay if that's the only way I can get my voice. You know, so this whole process is all part of the process of moving toward fascism. That's really interesting, uh, Jerome. I, I mean, you know, it, it's I think it's common for us to say that the suppression of voting rights is uh, the mechanical reason is to just prevent, you know, the people you know who are going to vote against you, like so, just reduce mm -hmm. their numbers. And if I understood you right you seem to be saying that, no, it's also a way to energize. It's not just suppression. It's a way to get the, you know, uh, your base um, mm -hmm. sort of riled up about their their rights. So so they feel right. like their rights are being respected. Exactly. Or, yeah. Exactly. See, see because um, we have to have to understand that this wave of voter suppression, because there's always been voter suppression, but this wave of voter suppression is against something that did not happen. You know, yeah. they're saying that we're doing this because of fraud. It did not happen. So it has a dual effect. One, it, 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 can, it will suppress the vote. But secondly, it will get people to believe what they're telling them 
as opposed to believing the facts before their very eyes. Hmm. You know, that, that, that little thing of getting them to believe the lie and getting them to follow them, no matter what they tell them, hmm. is part of the process of building that social base for fascism. Well, I, um, I mean, I'm very grateful for the insight. Um, I also wish you hadn't said that because that's another reason to lose sleep. Uh, of, yeah, I know. Uh, all, <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, so, you know, I mean, on on the left or, you know, in, in, in the socialist left that, that I'm a mm -hmm. part of. So one, you know, sometimes we are wary of investing too much effort in the electoral process broadly defined uh, because ultimately it's about bourgeois democracy and and why bother um, uh, how how seriously should we be taking the voter suppression and so on as socialists like what yeah how 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 much energy should we expend against that kind of thing? The, I, look, I think the, the, the most optimum way that they can move toward a fascist state in this country is if it's voted in. Hmm. Just look at Trump. I mean, the fact that he was president meant to him, it meant that he could do whatever he wanted to do. And in fact, he did. And there was no consequences. He had the levers of power to prevent any consequences from happening. I think, I think the, they learned a lot from, from that Trump the right wing, and, and when I say right wing, I mean the Republicans and the Democrats to a certain extent, you know, and the institutions. Mm. That's what I'm talking mm. about. I'm not talking about these crazies, mm. although the crazies have to be watched too, you know, and organized against too. But, um, you know, this whole, I think this whole process of the right understanding that if they're elected, they have more leeway of, of consolidating fascism than if they, if they did it in some other way, like the January 6th way of trying to take over in a militant more way. So that, what that says to me is that we, we, we do have to prevent them from getting that advantage of open fascists being elected to office to have the power of those offices. Now we know we know elections are not going to set us free, but we also know that that we need the we need as long as we can have it the freedom to organize. You know, once fascism is consolidated, that freedom to organize is going to be greatly curtailed. We'll figure out a way to do it because that's what people do, but we don't want to put ourselves in that position. So yes, I think participating in elections in this moment is very critical, you know, but we can't, we can't mistake our fight against the consolidation of fascism 
with a so-called support for democratic, you know, for bourgeois democracy. It's just a, a, our ability to have time to get organized so that we are in a better position to fight than we are now. That's all. So yes, we got to, I think we, I think we have to participate in elections if for no other reason, but to prevent them from mm. the open fascists from being elected and having that power along with, you know, the power of being part of, the, part of these institutions. Mm. Mm. Jerome, why do you think, so, I mean, at some level, it's obvious why people like this would use white supremacy. As you said, it's the DNA of the country. And, you know, uh, and at the same time, the country has changed a lot. And if you if you are, uh, you know, intent on just doing away with democracy, like, why would you not try to find something that would actually cut across race lines? Uh, and so, 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 instead of whipping up white supremacy, why would you not sort of make an appeal to something, I don't know, something else, like, you know, uh, you know, the American way or some, something <laughs> that, that, quote unquote, allows people to come together in, you know, under that nationalist mm -hmm. kind of thing. What, what do you think is going on there? What, you know, what is the... What is the most important and consistent weapon that the ruling class in this country uses? Mm. What is it? It's disunity. Mm. It's disunity. If they can keep us disunited, they will be fine because they're united. What's the biggest weapon in that disunity? White supremacy. Mm. So you can say things like, and we have said it, we've tried, people have tried it. You know, it's not like people haven't tried to, you know, uh, Alinsky organizing, for instance, in this country was, was the kind of organizing that said, don't you ever say anything about those things that divide us, like race, you know, or class. Don't even talk about any of that stuff, white supremacy. And what did that get us? That did, you know, we, we are just as disorganized today as we were 50 years ago. Huh. You know, we, the only, thing, only way that we can get the um, critical mass of workers united is if we prevent them from falling into the trap of white supremacy, huh. of, of thinking that they're superior to everybody else, and therefore, why should they unite? You know, why am I going to unite with you when I'm superior to you? That don't make any sense. You should unite with me because I'm superior. Yeah. You know, and so if we don't educate ourselves and struggle with each other around those concepts that disunite us, we will never have the strength to get to that critical mass of unity that we need to be effective in this country. Hmm. But that's, so that's why we have to deal with white supremacy. Yeah, yeah. No, I. Uh, it's their biggest weapon. Hmm. And and so yeah, you're you're also answering the the other question that I was uh, sort of thinking out loud that um, uh, that this is why a ruling class would would continue to use it even when it seems like you could appeal to a more general national sort of that it mm -hmm. is so effective, you know, in this country. It's, right. Uh, yeah. 
Um, and it keeps them in power. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you do have a few more minutes and the patience to tell us about the split between uh, or or what happened with the the Black uh, Workers Congress uh, within the, uh, if if we are okay talking about that, that would be great. Um, yeah. Um, I'll give you, there is a, there is a long answer <laughs> that we don't have time yeah. for, you know, a, a, a more comp- comprehensive answer, which, you know, some people might want to hear and we can get into that at some later time. But the short answer is the League of Revolutionary Black Workers were based in Detroit. We began a process of trying to uh, examine whether or not we should expand throughout the country, mm. you know, in other places. And we started this, this, and we actually began to organize an apparatus that was called the Black Workers Congress. That, you know, we, we sort of, we didn't really get far with it before the split, but that was the idea that was, that was being put out and, you know, we were traveling around the country talking to other groups about it and trying to figure out how much how much connections we had um, throughout the country that, you know, was this a possible idea? So that was one thing going on. At the same time, struggle within the plant in Detroit was continuing to develop, mm. you know, and, and although we were a pretty comprehensive apparatus, we still had limited resources, you know, and so the question of resources, should we, should we do things to help promote our national interests, or should we concentrate on what we got and build and consolidate our local bases that we have? That, that was the real fundamental contradiction within the organization that set the basis for the split. And then of course, all kinds of other stuff played into it, you know, uh, but that was the fundamental thing, you know, that, and, 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 I, and I think that's an important thing that people have to realize because that's not an uncommon problem. You know, it's a common problem that if you're being successful and it's not an easy answer, if you're being successful and you build a base in one spot, you will come up against this problem of whether you should expand or mm. or, or concentrate. Always, I mean that's hmm. that's just part of the development process. And the people who wanted to expand, it was a very important thing that they said. They said, "Look, we're in Detroit. If the ruling class concentrates on us, they can destroy us. You know, we're in one spot, one city." If we don't expand, we're leaving our flank open and we won't be able to survive. That was their argument. That's a vital argument. So, you know, how do you argue with that? The other parts, but there were other people saying, okay, I, I got that. But as we began this process, we began to take resources away from consolidating our, the base that we have. And some places we're losing you know, our base, because we're not consistent with our organizing in there because our resources are limited. And we got lots of organizing to do in Detroit. 
you know, and so it's not, I don't want people to think that it's an easy thing. It's a very difficult um, contradiction. And it, and, it, and it rose to a head in, in the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. And the split then occurred in, I think, 1972. Okay. Okay. And there's a lot more to talk about in that split, but that was the fundamental thing. Um, well, and, you know, it sort of goes without saying that if you, at, you know, at some other point, if you have the time for a longer conversation, I'd love to have that with you. But, but I appreciate this basic point that um, expansion versus consolidation. Um, uh, and as you said, it, it curiously, the problem arises when you've had a certain level of success. I mean, if you're still struggling, then there's no, you just, right. don't yeah, come up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and it's definitely something, you know, to, to watch out for. Um, and as you said, no, it, there's no formula, there's no like one, once and for all right. solution. Um, right. uh, well, Jerome, thank you so much. I can say like, honestly, that I've learned more in these 45 minutes to an hour then in reading a half dozen books about the uh, about <laughs> Detroit and the league. Um, so. Yeah, well, see, we haven't written our own book. That's the problem. The, the people who lived it hadn't written it. And we're trying to correct that. We're trying to write a book now. Okay. You know, using those interviews that you went and looked at. Yeah. You know, we're trying to use that information as well as a lot of other information to put together the history of the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. So look forward to the book. Scott's reflections on the League's experiences remain sharply relevant. The League sought to exercise the power of workers at the point of production for nothing less than the transformation of the entire economy. Perhaps its most tangible victory was the exposure of racism and segregation within one of the country's most powerful labor unions. This was in fact a revolutionary achievement, or at least a precondition for truly radical labor organizing. Over the next few episodes, I'll talk with other guests about some of the issues Scott raised, such as tensions over strategy as organizations become larger and more successful, and just how great the threat to bourgeois democracy is in the U.S. today. Join us in thinking aloud about how our day-to-day work during corona can cohere into a battle plan for democratic socialism after it 